Well, good morning. I'm glad that you guys could be here. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 26. While you're turning there, I just have to ask you a question. Does anyone here believe in magic? I mean, really? Does anyone believe that you could just simply wave your hand around and say some magic words and then, like, you know, a bird will just kind of pop out of nowhere? Right? If, if you just say the right mantra, if you perform the right actions, you know, abracadabra and boom, a, a bunny's just magically going to pop out of a hat. Right? Does anyone, does anyone believe that here? I mean, really? You, you do? Really? Okay, I'm sorry, Lexi. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't think that anyone here actually believes that you could say words and like a woman is literally cut into, an elephant disappears, all that kind of stuff, right? It doesn't actually happen. And so, you know, you have to think about it, right? Like if somebody has the divine power to do something, you think they're going to ask for bunnies and birds? I mean, really? I mean, if I had the if, if I had the ability to make something appear, you know, and I, I'm just some guy believing in magic, you know, then I, I'm asking for women and cars and and you know money. That's what I'm asking for. If I saw a magician that asked for that, then I would believe him. You know, just like, you know, all of a sudden he's like abracadabra, boom, a castle. There you go, right? That's the kind of magician that I would be more likely to believe. And so I'm sorry if I happen to ruin your day or your ninth birthday or whatever that's going to be, but. You know, the reality is nobody, nobody really buys it, do they? Uh, but, you know, I, I stand amazed at how many times we as Christians will kind of treat Christianity like it's magic. You know, if, if I just perform the right actions, if I, if I say the right words, then I'll get what I want, right? It, God will just bow his will and his power to me, and he has to because I perform the ritual. I said the magic words. God is now obligated to bow and bend himself to me, to serve me in what I want. Right? We treat it like magic. We even have passages that seem to support such an idea. Passages like the one for this morning. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and he believes without doubt in his heart, but believes that God will, what he said will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That sounds like a guarantee, doesn't it? I just ask for what I want. Oh, I gotta pray and believe and boom, it's there, it's mine. I just have to have enough faith. If I want, if I want health, I just gotta pray for it and believe. If I want wealth, again, pray and believe. If I want prosperity, you name it, I claim it, right? That's all I gotta do. Apparently somebody is locked right out there. <laughs> uh, hi, somebody's coming to rescue you. <laughs> uh, funny. Uh, <laughs> don't even know where to pick up. Okay, but yeah, we treat it like it's basically magic, right? Like if we just say the words and all that, it's just, you know, the bunny's going to pop out of the hat. But what if God doesn't give you what you want? Is it just because you don't believe you you lack faith is it is it really because there's some hidden sin in your life is that really what it's about you know this is one of the biggest heresies in the church today right this idea of the prosperity gospel right 
that God wants to give you your best life now. And you can turn on the TV, and most of the channels that are there, most of the speakers there, they're telling you what you want to hear. Hey, as long as you believe, man, you ask for it, you're going to receive it. But don't forget to pay me, right? Don't forget to call now. Right? Don't, don't forget to give. You know, if you want that job, man, you just ask for it, you give money. If you want that money, you know, you want your bills paid, you just need to give in faith. If you do that, then God is going to bless you because He wants to give you your best life now. And there's all sorts of people. I mean, we can name off lists. There's Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, you know, uh, Joyce Meyer, the Copelands. I mean, you name it. They're everywhere. Just turn on the TV, and that's typically what you see. And as bad as it is here in America, unfortunately it's even worse in third world countries as they prey off of people's desperation. In their poverty, people are just wanting to get by and they're reaching and grasping for anything. When I was in India, Benny Hinn is worshipped there by professing Christians as some sort of demigod. And they think that he has all the answers because look what he can do. Talk to a man who's on dialysis. I sent all sorts of money to Benny Hinn in the hopes that he could get on stage with him as he was going through his India tour. But it wasn't enough. I've seen people in extreme poverty send all that they had to his ministry. But if it's less than 500 rupees, they'll send it back with a shaming letter about telling them how, how little faith they had. <laughs> this, it's just crazy. This idea, all of this is supposedly done in faith in order to increase their faith so that people can experience their fruit of their faith, that they can have their best life now, and it's absolute heresy. But is that really what Jesus promised? Now, I doubt that any of you have fallen into that. I doubt that, that any of you really just kind of struggle with that idea that you've given money, that you're hoping to become wealthy, or you're hoping to become healthy, you're hoping just that everything works out in its advantage for you. But here's where it does hit us. Instead, our faith wavers because despite the fact that we have prayed night and day for one of our loved ones to come to Christ, they still deny the faith. We have wept and we have prayed selflessly and consistently at the bedside of a dear soul that we just want to see the Lord heal. And after agony and after pain and after much weeping, we cry again, this time at their graveside. You may have been praying for a long, long time over something that's really good something that is honoring to the Lord, something that is, is really good for other people. And it, it's in no way reflective of yourself, and you want that, you desire that, you hunger for that, and you, you pray and seek the Lord's face. But nothing happens. Nothing changes. And you're left wondering, is it, is it me? Did I just not have enough faith there? Am I, am I a believer at all? What has prevented God from hearing my prayers? Is that really how we should understand these promises? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning in Mark chapter 11. So Mark 11, verses 20 through 26, is page 847 in the Bibles there in the chairs. 
says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What I want us to see this morning is that true faith is not evidenced in our ability to manipulate the use of God's power. Instead, true faith is resting in God with our whole being, in His person, in His power, in His plan, in His purposes, and in His promises. This text identifies four evidences of true faith. And you know, none of them include getting what you demand or getting what you ask for. True faith rests in the identity of Jesus. True faith trusts in the power and purposes of God. True faith is confident in prayer. And true faith forgives. Now, I have to say right out the gate that the reason why so many people have abused this passage and twisted it into a blank check for God's power is that they have failed to take it into context. They have failed to consider where it lies in Scripture and what's going on in front of it, and what's going on behind it, right? You have to understand the context. You have to understand the surrounding text before you can understand the passage. It's just a good rule of thumb. Rather than ripping some verses out of their context and reading them and trusting in them as promises for themselves, but to to just keep reading, okay? If ever you're thinking about a certain text, you're wanting to apply it to your life, read. Just keep reading. Reading, okay? I'm going to break your hearts here. Jeremiah 29.11 is not a promise of hope and future for you so that you can succeed, okay? Jeremiah has a condemning voice. He said, settle in, folks. You're here for 70 years. But guess what? My promises still stand. Not to you, but to the generations that come after you. You're going to die here. That'll change the way you read that passage, won't it? Don't treat the Bible like a Ouija board or like a magic eight ball. Okay? We can't simply pull from it what we like and read it in the way that we want to. Okay? This passage was not placed here by accident. Mark knows exactly what he's doing. Okay? He's not collecting this bunch of random sayings that Jesus offered and kind of just throw them into a pot and you can kind of pull them out and read them individually. Right? Mark is giving his historical account of his life, or the life of Jesus, right? He's telling us a story about Jesus. He wants us to understand who he is and what he's done. And so if we're going to read the sayings of Jesus, we have to read them in their context to know what's going on. This passage takes place within a larger section, chapters 11 through 13, in which Jesus is condemning the worship at Jerusalem because it has become a mockery to God. Okay? In fact, the Old Testament prophets basically condemn the worship there virtually all the time. Right? You, you kind of see that kind of laid out throughout the history. And this is no exception except Jesus is getting ready to make it obsolete. We saw back in chapter 11 that he overturned the tables at the temple and he cursed the religion that was taking place there. 
As you keep reading in chapter 12, what you'll see is that Jesus is again confronted by the opposition of the religious leaders of the day, and he stiffly warns them, listen, you've got to change your ways and follow me, or that's it. In chapter 13, he's predicting the destruction of the temple itself. And in chapter 15, he's going to tear the temple curtain straight in two, making it completely obsolete. He says that the religious leaders are blind. They're leading the blind. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. In vain do they worship God. You can see in all of this context, even throughout the Gospel of Mark, right, that, that the overwhelming focus is on the worship of people, right? Are they truly going to recognize Him? Are they truly going to follow Him? Or are they going to have a form of religion that is blasphemous and pleases no one? Those who worship Him in faith will be saved, but those who worship God, even in part, but not fully, will be condemned. That's the context of this passage. That is what we have to understand before we can rightly interpret and apply God's promises regarding faith and prayer. In verses 20 and 21, it says that as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Now this sets the stage for the passage. But you can't understand the scene without going back and looking at the fig tree. When did we see it first? We saw it in verse 13. And so you have to read 12 to 21 together if you're going to understand what's going on and be able to apply that to 22 through 25. Okay, you have to get that. When Jesus spoke of the fig tree, he curses the fig tree as an illustration of God's condemnation of the false worship of the temple in verses 15 through 19. It's a typical Old Testament image referring to God's displeasure at the Israelites' worship. Okay? Fig tree is a common illustration for that. The fig tree appeared to be healthy, but it bore no fruit. And what we ultimately saw from this text is that Jesus is the judge of worship. He is the one who determines whether or not our worship is pleasing to Him. He is the one who knows whether or not our faith is genuine, whether or not we're bearing fruit for God. He curses the fig tree and it withers as a demonstration of that reality, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord. In verse 21, we see that Peter is shocked by this miracle. Okay? Flabbergasted. He doesn't get it. This is the first time in all of Jesus' ministry where Jesus presents a curse and then validates it with a miracle. And Peter just has no paradigm for it. Jesus proves that not only does he have the divine power to bless, but also the authority to curse. And Peter's messed up by this. This, this is reworking everything that he knew. God is not honored in some nationalistic religious ritual. Okay? God doesn't look favorably on a nation, not Israel, not America, right? Just because people give lip service to God. It doesn't matter what you profess, it really matters like, what's happening here. Is it real? Is it genuine? No, Jesus is the Son of God with the divine power and authority to either bless or curse individuals and nations based upon the authenticity and reality of their faith and their desire to follow Him. This cursing of the fig tree then shows that He has the power and authority to judge. He is the Son of God. 
But not only is he fully God, he's also fully man who lived within history. So often we kind of overlook this point. You know, we kind of neglect it, focusing on the fantastic, focusing on the supernatural, right, and wrestling with that, and neglecting the fact that Jesus was a real man that lived in history. We treat him like a mythical figure, that he's no more real to us than Thor. In fact, if you've seen the movie, Thor might be more real to you, right? I mean, who knows? But I want you to pay attention to the first three words in verse 21. It says, And Peter remembered. The Gospel of Mark is the eyewitness account of Peter. Peter, a man just like you and me, with all sorts of struggles, with all sorts of sin, tells his life story with Jesus with raw honesty. Peter flat out tells us when he sinned. He tells us when he does wrong. He tells us when he's rebuked by Jesus. He doesn't present himself as a super Christian. He doesn't present himself as some perfect, holier-than-thou follower of Jesus Christ. No, he presents himself as a flawed man who struggles with doubt and despair and disbelief. That's the Peter that we have in the Bible. But even in his honesty about his own sin, he also tells him what leads him towards faith. He also tells him what, us, what, what makes things different for him. He remembers the truth of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. Okay? He remembers the, the historic God-man. He remembered that Jesus had taught him and he had commissioned him. He remembers who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what it means to follow him. Guys, this is huge for us because just like Peter, God allows us to be shocked in disbelief. Do you know that? God allows us to experience struggle. God allows us to fall into sin. And He does that to stretch us, to grow us, to lead us back to Himself. I mean, read the Psalms. It's consistent throughout the Psalms. But God does it always to grow our faith so that it becomes more genuine and precious through testing. And Peter tells us that explicitly in his letter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. He says, hey, if it's necessary for you to go through various trials, then great, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold. There's purpose in it. He wants you to struggle with and wrestle towards resting in the identity of Jesus and who He is and what He has done. This is what brings you back. This is one of the ways that your faith is confirmed. Not that you struggle with emotion or with doubt, but that you land back at the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the anchor for your soul. If you lose sight of Him, you will waver. But if you preach the truth of who He is to yourself, there is calm in the middle of life's storms. Mark is telling us this over and over and over and over again. Will you rest in Jesus? Okay? That's the primer. Okay? 
for what we want to get into. Everybody wants to get into verses 22 through 25, but we've got to get that first, right? That true faith rests in the identity of Jesus. But second, true faith trusts in the power and purposes of God. Okay, verses 22 and 23. Jesus used Peter's shock of disbelief over the withered fig tree as a springboard to teach about faith. Right? This is not coincidental. It's not accidental. Jesus is intentional in what he says next. Verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now Mark is intentional about this connection. It says that Jesus answered them. He's not just answering Peter and Peter's shock and disbelief. He's answering all the disciples who are shocked and disbelieving. He knows their hearts. We've seen that over and over again. Jesus responds to their doubt with a call to faith. Jesus answers disbelief not by saying, hey, listen, you just need to have faith in your faith. He says, no, you need to have faith in God. Now, this is where Greek grammar is really, really helpful. Okay? Uh, one, one of the few, like, there, there are definitely values to Greek. Greek is not a silver bullet, but this is one of the ways where it's so helpful. Because if, in the Greek, you recognize that all Jesus' emphasis is on those first four words. Have faith in God. Okay? It's the main point. Have faith in God. Trust in God. Rest in God. Believe God. Where is the root of your faith? Is it in your ability to command and move mountains? Is it in your ability to see your prayers come to fruition? Is it in your faith? Do you have faith in your faith? Is that really what it's about? No, it's about God. Have faith in God. When you are in disbelief, trust in the perfect nature and character of God. When you doubt, believe what God has promised. When you are uncertain and this world is working you over emotionally and physically and spiritually, hope in the good and perfect promises of God. And we look at this verse and we get so preoccupied with the fantastic We want to know about moving the mountains. We want to know about getting our prayers answered. We focus so much on the fantastic, when in reality, everything is about the straightforward and mundane. Have faith in God. Trust in His person. Trust in His promises. Trust in His purposes and in His plan. God knows what He's doing. You don't know what you're doing, but God knows what he's doing, right? You get that, right? You don't know what you're doing. You think you know what you're doing, but you don't know what you're doing, right? I'm going to ask, I I could ask every one of you, right? What are you doing in the next year? Okay. You write down a big list. We'll come back in a year and review and we'll see what you, if you know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. God knows what you're doing. You can't move mountains. You can't change your circumstances, but God can. And he does. And he will, according to his perfect plan and purposes. And guess what? It's not yours. We could save ourselves so much heartache if we would but seek to know God and his will through his word. And trust in that more than in our emotions, 
more than in our experiences, more than in the fleeting thoughts and lies that enter our heads. But we don't. We act just like that foolish and impetuous Peter, caught up in the moment, not able to see the big picture. The key to this entire passage is found right there in those four words. Have faith in God. Doubt your doubts. Trust in Him. Now, I should end right there. Okay? Because that's the main point. I should be just done. Close the Bible. Let's go home. Okay? But I doubt that I'm satisfying anybody's desires, right? I think that you probably would be mad at me if I didn't address what came after that. So I'll throw you a bone. I'll do it. You might not be pleased with my results, but I will throw you the bone. Okay? Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Okay. Again, Greek, it will be done for him. Points back to have faith in God. Okay, but I'll keep going. Uh, before we can talk about this saying or believing or receiving, we have to deal with this mountain. Why does Jesus say this mountain? Do you ever think about that? Well, there are two reasons, right? First, biblical imagery. The idea of moving a mountain is to refer to doing the impossible, right? Doing what's impossible. You see that in Isaiah 40, verse 4, 49, 11, 54 verse 10, you see it in Mikey, you see it in Ezekiel, basically all the prophets, you see this idea of moving mountains as this impossible act. Well, guess who always does it in these Old Testament allusions when you have this reference to moving mountains? God. Not man, but God. God and only God moves mountains. Man does not move mountains. God moves mountains. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Not with God's help, but only if God does it. Okay? Your faith, with God's help, doesn't move mountains. God moves mountains. Have faith in Him. Do you see the difference? Okay? I'm going to say that again. Your faith, with God's help, doesn't move mountains. God moves mountains. Have faith in Him changes the way we read that, doesn't it? Second, Jesus didn't say, whoever says to a mountain, or whoever says to mountains, he says, whoever says to this mountain. What mountain is he referring to? The temple mount. He has a specific mountain in mind. And that's completely consistent with the message of chapters 11 through 13. You see? Context. His point is that we should trust God to remove whatever hinders them from bearing fruit for God. Right? In this case, it's the Jewish religious system. Jerusalem, the temple, religious leaders, the sacrificial system. All of it stood in opposition to Christ and he is going to remove it. That's the point. Need more evidence? Okay, let's go. The issue of casting it into the sea. Okay? Another image. Sea is an image for calamity and destruction. Casting something into the sea is an image or metaphor for judgment. Okay? We've seen this happen twice in Mark. 
First, Mark chapter 5, who's cast into the sea? The demon-possessed pigs. Chapter 9, who's cast into the sea? One who causes a children, one of the children of God to sin. It is better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and cast into the sea than cause one of these little ones to sin. That's judgment. You see it. Those who stand opposed to God will be thrown into the sea. The mountain, Zion, the temple mount, stand, stands opposed to God and, 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 his sovereign, and in His sovereign will, He will throw it into the sea. I didn't make this up. I just want to clarify. Okay, If this is new to you, you've never heard a preacher preach on this before, I'm sorry. But the biblical scholars agree with me. Okay, I didn't come up with this. Just say it, right? So if it's new to you, trust in it. Let's seek it out. I'll, I'll point you to some commentaries. You can take their word for it if I'm not good enough for you. Anyway, so those who believe in God have confidence that he will accomplish even the impossible according to his sovereign will. Now, Jesus is making a hyperbolic statement here. Did Jesus ever move mountains physically? No. So is the point of this the takeaway that we should move mountains physically? No. Jesus doesn't move mountains physically, but he does spiritually. He cursed the worship practices, the temple and the religious leaders. He predicted their destruction. And in his death on the cross, he tore that temple curtain in two from top to bottom. He rendered the whole thing obsolete. Nullified. And what is and what always will be impossible for man is possible for God. He is that powerful. That is his plan and he is going to do it. Jesus is not teaching his disciples to be magicians. He's teaching them to have faith in the all-powerful sovereign Lord of the universe and to entrust their souls to a God who will not allow any hindrance to remain in the way of his people coming to Christ. God is that committed to you. He will move mountains to get to you if you are his. Nothing will separate it. He will smash the idols. He will tear them down. He will pursue you. He will fulfill His purposes in you. That is a guarantee. Have faith in God. That's it. That's what it's about. So when Jesus says that if you don't doubt in your heart, but believe in what he says, it will come to pass, it will be done for him. You also have to take this, ask the question, who is the whoever here? Who's the whoever in the text? The reality is that only one man said to this mountain, take up, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Only one man believed in all his heart that this would come to pass. And God did it for only one man. Jesus Christ. This is not a blank check to name and claim for our own selfish ends. Okay? Need some proof? James and John in chapter 10 made a request to Jesus. Let us sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Were they granted the request? Right? 
No. Well, you might say, well, they're being selfish. Clearly, there's sin in their lives. Okay, another example. Paul, three times he prayed selflessly in faith that God would remove the thorn of flesh from him. Did it happen? No. It stayed. Well, well maybe, maybe there was some hidden sin. Maybe, maybe Paul lacked faith. Okay, one more example. Okay? Mark 14, verse 36. The perfectly obedient Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That cup was his suffering and his death. Did Jesus not have enough faith for God to grant his prayer? Or was it the will of God to crush him? Okay. It's not about you and your faith. Don't have faith in your faith. Have faith in God. Saying with, without doubt in your heart and believing that it will come to pass can only happen according to God's sovereign power and will. God's power will never be used for anything other than His purposes. To trust God in His power means we have to first trust Him in His person and in His purposes and in His promises. If you know Him and you know His will, if you ask for anything that is a way that is consistent with Him, it will be done for you according to His plan, not yours. You see, faith is not a means to manipulate God so that you can use His power for your glory. Faith is trusting God so that you can see Him fulfill His purposes for His glory. If you are doubting or unbelieving or relying on your own faith, you're not going to see it. You will be blinded to it, even if you happen to get what you want. So, true faith rests in Christ's identity and trusts in the power and purposes of God. Third, true faith is confident in prayer. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Ha <laughs> ha, the genie in the bottle verse, right? Okay, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for, just so long as you rub the lamp in the right way, it will be done for you. Right? Is that what it says? Okay? I mean, how many of us have abused this one? Right? I mean, what, what are some of the things that you ask for in your life? I mean, i got to tell you... Uh, I, I'm glad that apparently I didn't have very much faith as a, as a girl-crazy young man, because if I did, I would have a harem right now. I would. Me and Solomon, right? You know? Me and Solomon, we're having a conversation. Hey, dude, man, check out that woman. She is mine. No way, dude. No way. I prayed in faith. I rubbed the lamp, right? I believe that she's going to be given to me. She is my woman, right? Is that all we have to do, really? Guys, has that worked for you, Right? I, I asked this because when I was in college, I knew dudes that were just like, man, they would see a girl and they would try to play the Holy Spirit card, you know, and they would go up to him and say, say, hi, my name is Jack and uh, I believe the Lord is calling me to marry you. Right? You know, it's the Lord's will. I prayed. I believed. It's happening. Come on. Right? Did that ever work? Did, you ever, did anyone ever... You know, you have a marriage that ever happened that way? If so, I want to slap the girl. I'm sorry. I'm not, you know, I do. Like, what are you thinking? That's not the way it works out, is it? The reality is somebody doesn't have faith there, and I'm not sure who it is. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, it just doesn't work, man. It's just crazy. Uh, she never buys it. And, and thank God she never buys it. You know, like, but again, making light of this, but we're all tempted to use this verse to our own advantage, right? And maybe you didn't pray that, that, pray that God would give you a woman, you know, give me a woman. Uh, but, <laughs> but maybe it was a job, right? Maybe, maybe you prayed that he would heal a sick friend. Maybe you prayed that God would lead somebody to repentance and, or that he would provide for your church. But it hasn't happened in the way that you prayed. So make those prayers wrong? Is God disappointed in the fact that you prayed for your friend and he's still sick? Still has a disability? Whatever? Is God less glorified in that? But the thing is, it always leaves us wondering. To think that, that, that thing that I prayed for, it, it, it's not mine. So it, it's got to be me. Maybe, I, I must not have enough faith. Maybe, maybe I just don't have faith at all. You see where this leads to? Friends, prayer is more than asking God for stuff. It is communicating with God. It is proclaiming back to God who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be, adoring, right? We, we learned about this yesterday at the prayer retreat. Thank you all the way, uh, by the way, for all of those who have participated and all those who organized that. It was a real blessing to us. Um, but we pray to, to proclaim to God who He is, to adore Him. For who He is. We pray confessing our sins to Him. We pray giving Him thanks. It's not just about asking Him for stuff. Right? In prayer, we seek to conform our will to His, not bend His will to ours. Prayer, as far as an illustration goes, prayer is like a boat hook. Do you know what a boat hook is? boat hook is kind of like a grappling hook that some boaters use to actually catch the shore and pull the boat to shore, right? Prayer is like that boat hook. Now, when a, a guy, a boatman is on a boat and he throws that hook and he catches the shore, he doesn't pull the shore to the boat, does he? He pulls the boat to the shore, right? That's what prayer is like, right? We don't bend God's will to us, pull the shore to the boat, right? We pull ourselves to God. We draw near to Him. We seek to be changed and conformed to His will, not Him to ours, in prayer, we seek God, not stuff. We communicate that He is sovereign, not us, and that we need Him. In prayer, we seek His will, not our own. Those who trust God for the right things in the right way can be confident that God will supply their every need, knowing that He works all things together for good. And because God is good and sovereign and He works all things according to His will, we can then have confidence. We can come to Him with confidence, knowing that He can do all things according to His purposes and His power, but we do it in submission to His will, not our own. That's what prayer is all about. So, I should also add that when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Every time Jesus says you or yours, he's speaking to the plural, not to the singular. He's talking about corporate prayer, not individual prayer. Okay? He's speaking them to them as a body, not as independent followers. Perhaps the reason why your prayers are not answered is because they have not been asked within the collective wisdom and petition of the church. But maybe you have. Right? 
Maybe you and your life transformation group prayed about this thing consistently. Maybe it's a constant prayer request in your community group. Maybe you've brought it before the church time and time and time and time again. But nothing seems to change. You need to know that God has not abandoned you. Seek to understand above all else that God has reconciled himself to us in Christ. And as long as this is God's universe, the most important thing is to know how he feels about us. And he has told us that clearly. God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. A just God forgiving us is infinitely more amazing than seeing a mountain be moved. And so rather than praying for our own ends, pray instead that God would be glorified. I mean, think about this. When, when you pray with God's glory as your chief goal, you can pray with extreme confidence and boldness. Right? Because it's not about you. You pray with incredible power. When God's people are gathered in one body praying for His purposes, it is a powerful thing. If we would pray like that, we would see many more of our prayers become ours. We would be praying with Christ's intention for this verse. And so true faith rests in Christ's identity. It trusts in God's power and purposes. It prays confidently according to his will. But true faith is also directed towards others, which is seen most clearly in forgiveness. True faith forgives. Verse 25 says, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your sins. Now some translations like the New American Standard or the King James Version actually have a verse 26. So I wasn't misspeaking earlier when I said 26. I meant it to include this, right? In uh, verse 26 in these uh, translations says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Okay, these are based upon later manuscripts of the New Testament in which the copyist is reconciling Matthew 6, 14 and 15 with this account. Okay, so verse 25 has its parallel in Matthew 6, 14. Okay, but it doesn't have 15. And so they came in later and added 15 to make it consistent, to flush the whole thing out. Okay, but here's the thing, like. Even though it's not in the early manuscripts, it's still inspired because Matthew 6.15 is inspired. And it's, the idea that it's conveying is still represented in verse 25, even if you don't have a verse 26. So have faith. The Bible is not, you know, there's no reason to question the Bible on this. Okay? <clears throat> Having faith in God means that you're trusting in the character of God and reflecting the character of God to others. Okay? A central characteristic of God is the forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Our faith in God through Christ is not merely intellectual. It's not merely head knowledge. It's moral and ethical. It affects every aspect of our lives. There's not one point in which you can say, not that. You can't claim it. Jesus says so. He's Lord. Our faith shows itself in forgiveness. If we truly believe that God has forgiven our infinite offense against His perfect character, surely we ought to cancel the petty debt from one sinner to another. 
It pales in comparison. And this concept is echoed throughout the New Testament. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 18, Luke 6, Luke 7, Luke 11, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. And that ain't all. But basically it says the same thing. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Not an option. This is also one of the few times in Mark where God is referred to as Father. God, who loves you as a perfect heavenly Father, who has adopted you as a child through the death of His one and only Son. If you have repented of your sin and you believe in Christ, He has forgiven you. I mean, think of all the ways that you have rebelled against God. Think of all the ways that you have rejected Him and denied Him and tried to live your life without Him. Think of how many times you have taken the very breath that God has supplied to you and then used it to turn around and curse His name. If He, the infinitely perfect and holy God, can forgive this infinite offense against His name, against His character then surely you can forgive one who has sinned against you. It doesn't matter who's guilty or who's innocent. We have the power and ability in Jesus Christ to forgive. Forgiving others is evidence that God has forgiven us. And Jesus is clear here. If you hold anything against anyone. Well, that is pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Can you think of anything that might be an exception to that? I I can't. I really can't. Forgive any offense. Now, this may seem hard unless you recognize that Christ has already paid the debt. If you're trusting in your own ability, you won't forgive. But if you recognize that Christ has forgiven the debt, you can. I was talking to a lady at the Y this week. She hasn't spoken to her daughter in 15 years. She's a Christian now. And I was asking her about this. I'm like, listen, do you believe that God has forgiven you? Yeah, I do. Do you believe that the gospel has the power to change lives? Have you seen your life change? Yeah, I have. Why don't you go to your daughter? No, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm like, yeah, you can't, but the gospel can. It's that powerful. Believe it. I'm still working on them, by the way. She's not ready to yet, but I'm praying for them every time I see them. I see her and I see her daughter regularly. So you can be praying for them as well. Failure to forgive for a professing Christian, ought to cause you to question whether or not you have been forgiven. That's, those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. Okay? Jesus says, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Don't fool yourselves into thinking that you can have peace with God while you are bearing animosity towards another. It's not possible. Now look at me. I know that there are some of you here that still bear animosity towards another. I know that there are some of you here that are struggling with forgiveness. 
Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a brother that you haven't spoken to in I don't know how long. Maybe it's a best friend that you've just kind of walked away from for whatever reason. And you're embittered towards them. You've got to deal with that. It is not an option just to let that go. We have got to do it. Don't carry it with you. It doesn't work. Whether you have sinned against them or they have sinned against you, it doesn't matter how bad it is because God has forgiven you. And so you can and you must forgive others. I mean, how long, really, are you going to carry this bitterness and hatred with you? How long are you going to trade anger for the peace of God? You know it's not satisfying you. You know you're miserable. So why don't you do something about it? Is your resentment worth your soul? Is your resentment worth his or hers? Listen to me here. Do you realize that if you are a professing Christian, they know that, and they're not a Christian, your unwillingness to forgive them may may actually cause them to think that God is unwilling to forgive them? That you, at that point, are becoming a barrier and a roadblock to them coming to Christ? Because you want to hate them in your hearts? Because this is serious. How long are you going to keep playing the game that you have faith but denying its power? Do you really believe that the gospel leads to reconciliation? Do you? Then put it to the test. I dare you to test God in this. God's grace is sufficient to help you repair burnt bridges. It is sufficient to restore broken relationships, to bring peace where there was only war. And He does it through the cross of Christ. So rest in His identity. Trust in the power and the purposes of God. Pray with confidence and forgive with the grace that you have received and been forgiven. Stop trying to be a magician. Have faith in God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who is active and pursuing and transforming through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that our position before you is not dependent upon anything that we do it really rests upon you and your purposes and your grace as you pursue us but God I pray that we would recognize that that leads to transformation which means that we desire new things God forgive us for the ways that we try to seek to use your word to to get what we want rather than wanting you Forgive us for the ways we try to manipulate and distort or say, I'll follow you to this level but not to here. Or, God, why don't you bend your will to mine rather than me submit myself to you and yours. And God, I pray that you forgive us for our unforgiveness and that you give us new hearts for that. God, we want to follow you. We want to have faith in you. God, give us faith. 
Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.